We the People. We the People. We the People of the United States. We the People of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. In the summer of 1787, 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to consider how to make the government of the United States more perfect. Over the course of five months, they argued, debated, considered and rejected ideas, notions, and various systems. In the end, they created the Constitution of the United States, a document predicated on the idea that men can rule themselves by law. This is Constitution Thursday, a time when we look at the history, ideas, arguments, and interpretations of the Constitution, from its original creation to today, and how it affects our lives now. Is there a pandemic exemption to the Constitution of the United States? Well, at least one judge says no. But did he say it strongly enough? That's the real question that we got to get into today. Hey, welcome to Constitution Thursday. I'm Dave, your host. The text machine is area code 209565Dave. The email, dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And, of course, um, we're on the web. You can look us up at thedavebowmanshow.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedavebowmanshow. Ego be Barry Kapoulis at Olive Averb. I drink coffee so that others might live. Some days are easy. Some days are, I think John Denver said it best, some days are diamonds, some days are stones. I struggled with this one all week. I knew where I wanted to go. I knew what we wanted to talk about today. And I also knew that I, I, I know that I don't like to wear hats backwards, but the lights in my studio blew about 10 minutes ago. And so I'm... <laughs> I'm improvising, as it were. Uh, I hate wearing my hat backwards. It's it's just, <laughs> it's an anathema to me. But here we are so that we can go along. The uh, The problem with getting started with this was was difficult because there was no way to really, I, I was having a really hard time drawing the two disparate parts together that I wanted to put together. And then um, I realized that today is May 21st. May 21st was the day that Daniel Defoe, the writer, the, the famous writer, Robinson Crusoe, is said to be the second most translated book in history after only the Bible, believe it or not. So this was the day that he was arrested and jailed for seditious libel. Now, Defoe had written many, many books, as you know. He wrote Robinson Crusoe. His main thing was pamphlets. He he actually wrote a pamphlet, which, uh, if you heard uh, Do Not Resuscitate this weekend, we talked about another one, uh, a journal from Samuel Pepys. But uh, Daniel Defoe had also written a journal of the London Plague of 1665. I want to go back and read this, because 
now I'm fascinated by this stuff. It's it's pretty interesting. This one is uh, less uh, chicanery and more about the actual observations of the day. But it was this day in in 1702 that Daniel Defoe was arrested for writing the shortest way with the dissenters or proposals for the establishment of the church. It's published early 1702, and the the issue here was that King William III had passed away. Queen Anne had risen to become the monarch of England. Now, again, what I want you to keep in mind is that the framers of the Constitution were very, very familiar with this. This was this was not ancient history to them. This was relatively recent to them. They understood this stuff. They knew this stuff inside and out, and they lived it in many, many ways. Daniel Defoe's pamphlet entitled The Shortest Way with the Dissenters, or Proposals for the Establishment of the Church, is a wonderful example of Poe's Law. You know what Poe's Law is? Poe's Law is without a winking smiley or other blatant display of humor, it is utterly impossible to parody a creationist in such a way that someone won't mistake it for the general article, genuine article. This has been clarified, I guess. Uh, Mr. Poe, Nathan Poe, had an issue with creationists. Uh, Poe's Law is an adage of the internet culture stating that without a clear indicator of the author's intent, it is impossible to create a parody of extreme views so obviously exaggerated that it cannot be mistaken by some readers for a sincere expression of the views being parodied. parodied. That's important to keep in mind because Defoe's book, his pamphlet, as they would have called it, The Shortest Way with the Dissenters, is, well, it's supposed to be parody. The problem is, of course, that Mr. Defoe was well known as a supporter of a of religious tolerance that King William III, his his mentor, had had practiced. He was well known for being religiously tolerant in the sense that in order to hold public office in England at the time, you had to be a member of the Church of England, okay? Many people that held office were members of the Church of England, but not really involved with the Church of England. They would attend one Sunday a month, or a year, really, one Sunday a year. That would technically make them members, and the rest of the year they would go on being whatever they were, Episcopalian, Protestant, some other Protestant, Roman Catholic, uh, even Jewish. But this religious tolerance thing allowed them to hold office in England, public office, under King William III. Well, Queen Anne, upon her ascent to the throne, almost immediately did away with this tolerance idea. She, she, was, a, she was seen as a defender of the faith. It's part of her oath as queen. And she, by gosh, was going to defend it tooth and nail. And along comes Mr. Defoe, who, of course, was good friends with William III and a supporter of religious tolerance. He writes his, his uh, pamphlet, which includes a fable. It opens with the fable of the cock and the horse. Now, the cock and the horse are not, they're not Navy terms. They're, the horse, of course, is a horse, and the cock is, of course, a rooster. And the the... The tale involves the fact that there are a lot of roosters, a lot of cocks, and just one horse in the barnyard. And the problem is there's so many of these cocks, so many of these dissenters, that they're in danger of being smashed by the 
by the horse. They're running around like crazy. They're all over the place. And the horse, every time it rears, it comes down and steps on one of the centers. And the, the idea here that he was trying to get across was there's a lot of these dissenters and they're getting in each other's way. Again, this is parody. This is satire. We're getting in each other's way. We are causing ourselves to be mm, smashed by the queen, the horse, the representative of the horse. And it's too easy for her because there's so many of us going in so many different directions. Well, of course, the queen didn't necessarily like that. She didn't like being portrayed as a as a horse, and she she certainly didn't like the dissenters. She she thought dissent was unnecessary and it was problematic. It violated her oath as Queen of England, and so she had Defoe arrested and pilloried three times. Pilloried means he was placed in the stock three times, and essentially he was financially ruined. He was wrecked, and for the rest of his life he spent uh, everything from that point forward trying to recover financially. It's almost like a Tiger King meme. I'll never financially recover from this. Um, he, he spent the rest of his existence trying to recover from the damage that was done by his arrest over what he portrayed as 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 satire, as parody of the beliefs of the dissenters who were, even though he was probably one of them. Now, again, this is important because it it deals with freedom of expression when it comes to religion. How can I be, how can I freely express my religion? And of course, this made its way into our Constitution less than a hundred years later. As the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, this has been much debated throughout our history, as you can probably assume that it would have been. There's no two ways about it. One of the earliest cases about freedom of expression is, uh, to me, it's a fascinating one. It's Reynolds versus the United States, 1879. Now, this is post-Civil War, and if you're familiar at all with Civil War history, you know that Utah was a problem during the Civil War. Utah, as the Utah Territory, as it existed then, was consisted of what is now Utah and Nevada. The local residents wanted to create a state called Deseret, and while they were not pro-Southern, they sympathized with the Southerners because of bigamy. They saw bigamy in the same, in, in much the same way that the South saw slavery, as a fundamental state rat, as it were. And so, while Utah never favored the South, it didn't also, you know, join the Union, per se. It was, uh, it was quite the time. For for Western history, if you if you know anything at all about it, uh, Colorado's main involvement in the Civil War is guarding Utah. Of course, they split Nevada off as part of the uh, solution to all this. And post Civil War, the United States passed laws saying no bigamy. Bigamy is illegal, and of course, this created a problem for Utah because Utah bigamy was a thing, and for the record, still probably is. Reynolds was uh, Brigham Young's personal secretary. He uh, he married. He had multiple wives, and so he was put forward as the test case to the United States Supreme Court in 1879. The upshot of it was that the Supreme Court upheld the law against bigamy. Chief Justice Morrison Waite saying, "Quote: Laws are made for the government of actions, and while they cannot interfere with mere religious beliefs or opinions, they may with practice. They may interfere with practices." 
In other words, you can, we can't tell you what to believe, but we can tell you how to act. And so we are upholding this law against bigamy. This uh, actually worked in Utah's favor. Utah ended up becoming a state because of that, uh, because they rejected, quote unquote, bigamy. And off we went into the big, wide, wonderful world of Utah becoming a state, which eventually led to me moving there. And it it affected my life uh, in a lot of ways and my constitutional understandings in a lot of ways growing up uh, in Utah and looking back at those things. The next case, the problem was, of course, that this First Amendment was limited solely to the federal government. That was the problem. Congress shall make no law uh, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, was limited to the federal government until the 14th Amendment came along, and the doctrine of incorporation began to take effect. Now, the doctrine of incorporation, essentially, when you boil it down to its elements, uh, essentially says that this applies to both the federal government, and the state government. It came about because the states were abusing their powers. They were abusing people post-Civil War with with rights that many believed that they had fought for. Much like Shays Revolt in uh, 1786, the the former soldiers, slaves, and citizens felt that the governments were abusing rights that they felt that they had won, that they had earned. Well, incorporation came about because of this, the idea that... The Bill of Rights should apply to the states as well as to the federal government. And as cases went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court began doing what was known as incorporating. Incorporation simply in legal terms simply means that it now applies to the states. And as cases went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, the most recent one that we uh, we are mostly familiar with is, of course, the, the McDonald case, which incorporated the Second Amendment against the states. That's an easy way of saying that the state constitutions now respect, essentially contain the Second Amendment. Well, this free exercise thing, as we know, already went to the court once in Reynolds, where they upheld it, saying, no, we can interfere with your practice. In 1940, however, another case went to the Supreme Court, Cantwell versus Connecticut, and essentially what you need to know here is that Cantwell is a Jehovah's Witness, and he wants to testify, witness, handout literature, which is objected to in Connecticut. They pass a law saying you can't do that. They imprison him and fine him. Goes to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court incorporates free exercise in against the states, saying in the realm of religious faith and in that of political belief, sharp differences arise, which is true. In both fields, the tenets of one man may seem the rankest error to his neighbor. I love that. But the people of this nation have ordained in the light of history that in spite of the probability of excesses and abuses, these liberties are, in the long view, essential to enlightened opinion and the right conduct on the part of the citizens of a democracy. That's Judge Owen Roberts. In essence, now the states have to abide by the First Amendment's prohibition against free exercise. I, I think if you ask most most Americans, they would they would believe that anyway. But until 1940, that was not the case. But until 1940, under the the tenants of Reynolds, the, the states could very easily say, "No, you can't do that," and there would be no fallback. The argument against incorporation is detailed and long, far far more than we have time to get into here. 
But this idea that the states should abide by these rules was, again, brought about by the fact that the states were abusing the rights of their citizens. They were not giving them the right to free exercise. They were not giving them the right to free speech. They were not giving them rights to free trial by juries. They weren't uh, Fourth Amendments against unreasonable search and seizure. They weren't doing these things. And so Congress acted. Passed the 14th Amendment. It was ratified, but a lot of the states didn't like that. Uh, California, as I like to point out, didn't pass it until 1950. There were some problems with it. But at the end of the day, it's the law of the land. And this incorporation element becomes important, especially now as we, we roll into this Constitution and COVID kind of mentality. Many people have objected strenuously to the ideas that the local state governments are limiting the free expression of religion. And as part of the shutdowns, many of the governors have put limits on social gatherings. They have limited the sizes. They have said, you can't do that. You must stay at home. Any number of states have have had these issues. And it's not unusual. Here in Washington state today, just literally 20 minutes before I started this recording, the governor was supposed to release his plan for uh, state phase two of how things were going to reopen here. And that was canceled just about 20, 25 minutes ago because some court cases around the country have made it clear that the United States and the First Amendment are still in play or at least appear to still be in play. And so because of this First Amendment, the governor announced that he was canceling his news conference because they needed to rework the rules for how they're going to allow religious gatherings to happen. In North Carolina last week, Berean Baptist Return America, People's Baptist Church, and some others uh, filed a lawsuit against Governor Roy Cooper, claiming that his executive order number 138 was unconstitutional because it limited religious institutions and no one else. It it didn't religious it didn't limit Walmart didn't do a couple of things. And of course, the big news this week was that the judge, uh, James Deaver, had written those very words. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution of the United States or the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Plaintiffs have demonstrated that they are likely to succeed on the merits of their free exercise claim concerning assembly for religious worship is in the provisions of Executive Order 138 that they will suffer irreparable harm, absent temporary restraining order, and that the equities tip in their favor, so forth and so on. You get the idea here. And to hear this discussed around the country right now, you would think that this is the be-all, end-all of constitutional arguments with regards to free exercise and stay-at-home orders. But I want you to consider some things when you look at this case in North Carolina. There are some serious considerations that I want you to take, and and again, I'm summarizing here because I don't have a lot of time. I did read the order. I did read the lawsuit. I read the case, and there are some things that struck me, and I was actually talking to my friend Bill Mick about these yesterday. Number one is the, the restraining order is temporary. It is only 14 days. There is a general, an, another hearing scheduled for the 29th of May, and we'll see what comes out of that, but for the moment... The the restraining order is 14 days. What's the incubation period of COVID? <sighs> the executive order, number 138, never actually made it illegal to have a gathering of more than 10 people. What it, what it did was it made it 
complicated. It made it difficult because you needed to have it outdoors unless there was some limiting factor that you couldn't do it some other way. Now, you could argue, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue that in this era, the churches can't meet in some other way, whether that be video, whether that be radio, whether it be a drive-in theater, none of those things. It was never made illegal to do it, just that they couldn't do it indoors unless it was impossible to do it other ways. Now, consider a, a, a box store that's open. Can they sell their wares on the with, with less than 10 people in there? Probably not. It's not really functional. It's very easy for them to show that it's impossible. Is it impossible for a church not to meet physically in the room? I don't think so, but maybe you do. It's an interesting number that's 10 for religious services. Why do you think the governor picked that number? Anybody? Anybody have an idea why that number 10 is significant? Now, you could say, well because that would limit the spread, that would do this. and But if we're really trying to limit the spread, I mean, it should be zero, right? I mean, we've talked about the fact that if we're really serious about this virus, we're doing this entirely wrong. But that's a, that's a story for another day and a discussion for another day. This 10 is an interesting number for me because in the scriptures, it makes it very clear that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. You don't really, if you really believe what your, what your scriptures say, you don't really technically need to meet inside, do you? You don't really need to meet with groups of 10 or more, do you? I mean, again, that's what it says. Now, you can tell me I'm misinterpreting it, but go back to what they said about, you know, the, the, the disbeliefs, the differences in beliefs in the realms of religious faith. In both fields, the uh, may seem rankest error to your neighbor. Well, maybe it seems rank to you. Maybe it seems like an error to you that I'm that I'm coming up with that. But that's what it says. In Judaism, the minimum number of men necessary to conduct a service, you must have what's known as a menion, M-I-N, not M-E-N, is 10. I think that the governor might have been, I don't know, but he might have been taking that into consideration when he wrote his order. We don't know because he doesn't he didn't discuss it and he doesn't plan on appealing it. Next thing to consider, tax versus tax exempt. Most religious institutions are tax exempt. They don't necessarily contribute to the financial well-being of the of the of the governmental municipality, state, whatever being discussed, whereas the businesses do. Could that also be a consideration in all of this? Those are the things that I that I noted upon my consideration of this thing. And I and I started wondering about really this lawsuit going against the governor. Now, again, they get a temporary restraining order, but it's limited. And it seems while everyone is excited about what the judge wrote, there is no pandemic exception. The problem comes, of course, constitutionally, the problem comes back to Article one, Section 10. No state shall without the consent of Congress, blah, 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 blah or be in such imminent danger as will not admit delay. They shall not do any of those things as except in such imminent danger as will not admit a delay. And we've talked at length about the declarations of states of emergency. We've talked about the fact that these uh, governments have this power in every state law, every state constitution. I've read to you the Washington state ones. You can go look up your own state 
has within its con- within its laws and within its constitution the, the authorities and the powers of the government and the governor in those situations as delegated by the constitution in article 1 section 10 as well as an article or uh, 10 amendment number 10 sorry my brain was moving faster than my lips for a moment those two things combined are what have actually led to this problem as well as this concept of incorporation go back to incorporation what caused incorporation? What drove the idea of incorporation? It was very simple. It was the abuses by the states on their citizens that necessitated the federal government, Congress, stepping in and saying, no, these things apply to you, too, because they have to because you're, you're abusing things. And, of course, the states eventually went along with it, and the courts went, went along with it as well. I suspect, and I've said this on numerous occasions, and I will continue to say it as we think about the fact that that even in this idea of religious dissent and even in this idea of differing opinions that might get some thrown in, some people are getting thrown in jail, you know that, right, <laughs> over their dissent over things. And our framers learned from that. Our founders learned from that idea. They learned from the fable of the cock and the bull, and they understood that they had to protect this religious liberty. They understood that they had to come up with the concepts that that were necessary, initially limited to just the federal government, but now enforced against the states. Those things are important to keep in mind because now we find ourselves in a situation where what the framers feared most, one person, one man, one woman, one, one person in power, being able to exert Power over people is not a good thing. And what I find myself wondering today is whether or not many of these states will, I think they all should, but will they, when this whole thing is over, go back and reconsider those laws that allow governors to issue things like EO138 EO or whatever executive order is in place in your state that causes these limits on your constitutional rights. Now, whether or not I think the governors have the power to do that is, is another story. Obviously, they do. The question be, will become whether or not the court in North Carolina, the Eastern District of North Carolina on May 29th, when it hears this full thing, it will no longer be the opinion of just one man. It'll be a panel of, ninth, of, of Eastern District Court judges that'll have to look at it and see. And then we'll have something to go on, won't we? Then we'll have something to talk about, about where we're going from that point. It is absolutely intriguing to me. Will these states revisit this and start limiting those powers? I think they should. Whether or not they will, I think depends more on the political alignment of the state than it does really anything else. When you get right down to it, it's more about that. It's more about politics than it is anything else, isn't it? And that, of course, is part of the problem. We'll see what happens. We'll keep an eye on it for you. But remember, the myth of the cock and the bull, the fable of the cock and the bull, and Daniel Defoe arrested this day for expressing the idea that religious freedom, the expression of religious freedom, should be protected. How interesting that we find ourselves right back there again, even with our Constitution. This I'm Dave Bowman. This is Constitution Thursday on the Dave Bowman Show. We'll see you next week. And stay tuned this weekend for Do Not Resuscitate. See you later, everybody.